Hi folks and welcome to Epochs of the Lotus Eaters. This is part two of our King John series where we are talking about the signing of the Magna Carta, a rather important position in English history, isn't it? Um, and so we're going to pick up from where we left off last time. Um, in fact, where did we leave off last time? Uh, roughly just before the Barons' revolt oh. happens. Oh. Yeah, so John has been um, ruling uh, incompetently for how many years? 14, 15 odd years. Right. So 13, it's been a, 14 it's years. It's been a while. Yeah. So it's not like it was you know, day two that he becomes king and everyone's like, you know, I've had enough of this. So he's been given every chance. He's messed it up at every turn. Uh, and he's not been very pleasant. Mm, mm. It's quite handy that his reign is sort of, uh, fairly easily broken up into his different disputes with the church and his yeah. barons and Louis of France. Mm. Uh, uh, sorry, Philip. Philip of France, Philip Augustus. Um, so, yeah, the last sort of couple years of his life are very, very eventful and include the Baron's Revolt and the Magna Carta, the Great Charter. So it, it is worth doing that in some detail, I think. I think so too. Um, certainly where, we've, where we did Alfred the Great many moons ago now hmm. and talked a little bit about the, the laws under Henry II, um, Magna Carta really is sort of a, a watershed thing. Uh, one, th one thing to mention, actually, is that some historians argue over how important it is. Some, most will sort of say it's, you know, of, of key, key importance. Hmm. And others, like I was listening to a thing with David Starkey saying it's not as important as a lot of people think or would argue. Um, but we can get into all the details of that, exactly mm. to what extent it is or it isn't. Um, I've got a fair few quotes from people here talking about it. Um, so, yeah, let's get into it. What, what happened then, straight off the bat? Um, I've got, a, I've got a, a sort of a more general, to ease us in, a more general quote from Churchill just about John. He says this, There is no animal in nature that combines the contradictory qualities of John, united the ruthlessness of a hardened warrior, with the craft and subtlety of a Machiavellian. Although from time to time he gave way to furious rages in which, and this is a contemporary quote, his eyes darted fire and his countenance became livid. Uh, Churchill goes on. His cruelties were conceived and executed with a cold, inhuman intelligence. Monkish chroniclers have emphasised his violence, greed, malice, treachery and lust. A bit further down, Churchill says, uh, in him... The restless energy of the Plantagenet race was raised to a furious pitch of instability. Moreover, when the long tally is added, it will be seen that the British nation and the English-speaking world owe far more to the vices of John than to the labours of virtuous sovereigns, you know, in an indirect way. Mm. Um, for it was through the union of many forces against him that the most famous milestone of our rights and freedom was in fact set up. So it's sort of born out of John's failures hmm. or his tendency towards <coughs> tyranny or injustice. Yeah. Well, so one of the things I, that I sort of hinted at or mentioned a bit in the last one, but probably well, does need some reminding of people to set this up, is that um, the baronage did put up with quite a lot before they finally revolted. So in the book by um, Mark Morris, or was it Nicholas Vincent? One of those. Um, 
there was sort of they gave you gave a long list of sort of various sort of sm not small nothing small like this but uh, a, a list of small wrongs that he did. Mm. Um, so a lot of it revolves around money. Again, yeah. that classic yeah. cliche of, of Prince John from the Disney film. Sort of forced loans and things like that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there was various ways a king, if he wanted to, a Plantagenet king, um, could essentially extort money out of people, mm. out of rich people anyway. Um, there were various, they would call them aids, or there's the scootage. Mm -hmm. So scootage is the one where uh, if your liege lord asks you to fight, yeah, you pay money so you don't yeah. have to. Yeah, right. But the thing is, how much exactly? Well. And how often can the king demand scootage from you? Um, well, traditionally, wasn't it something like 40 days of service? Uh, like, well, like, this, well, that, that's, that's when I was learning about scootage. It was supposed to be like 40 days a year you were owed military service, mm -hmm. which isn't that much, really. That would have been not written in stone, though. No, no, absolutely. And that's the thing. Yeah, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah, this this would have just been customary. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, of course, the thing with custom is that, well, who's who's the one sort of in charge of it? And it kind of turns out to be the king. And if the king's evil, mm. well. So, um, it seems like Henry II and Richard asked for sort of scootage every two or three years, something like that. Hmm. And it wasn't, it doesn't seem to have been like massively extortionate, uh, sort of a, a, a giant sum to the point where a baron would be prepared to risk life and limb mm. on rebelling against it. Whereas John, it was every year or every 18 months and it was just massive sums. Yeah. Other, other um, sort of tithes, tithe isn't the right word, but other uh, reliefs, sometimes they call them aids and reliefs. Mm. It's just a word for a tithe or a ta essentially a tax or something or just a, an, a an, an extortion. Yeah. Um, things like when um, a member of the royal family would get married, and John had loads of sisters, yeah. Eleanor of Aquitaine really pumped out the babies. Um, when there was a royal marriage, the king could just ask his baronage and his nobles for a bit of money. A gift. Yeah. And, um, but then you, you can imagine there's all sorts of ways to fiddle that. You can say, you can betroth one of your sisters to someone, take the money and then say, oh no, actually the wedding's off. Things like that. Mm. And how much do you have to give him? Well, it's just at his discretion. Mm. So if he wants to just suddenly charge everyone 10 times, 20 times, 100 times what it was, was normal. Mm. Um, another thing, upon the deaths of rich landed people, um, all the money would sort of, you know, normally by custom go to the heir but there would be a sort of a small amount that the that the crown could ask for, um, a relief of some type. And again, it's it's just at the king's discretion. Mm. He could really take the Mickey and take loads of it, mm. or not, or, or not let the heir inherit it at all. If he wanted to, things like that. Mm. Um, uh, other things, other ways, John incurred the ire of his baronage. Would, for just one example, but this is a pretty typical thing, is that he would just sort of bully, bully it out of them in a way. Yeah. So there's one specific example where one of his barons, his, his, it was sort of known that his wife was cheating on him, sort of right. fairly openly. 
and he would just joke and talk about it loads, John would, at court, which is really, really, obviously, really, really embarrassing. Yeah. And there's a record of him saying, if you give me a bunch of money, I won't mention it ever again. How about that? And so the Baron, the Lord, was like, yeah, okay, all right then. <laughs> you know. Um, okay. Wasn't there some sort like of punishment that. for his wife cheating on him? Well, it was just more rumour. It was more right. like, um, yeah. Or, um, oh, like, small things like that. Um, and it wasn't always money. Sometimes it was like really... John seems to have been really sort of um, mean in the, in, in, the, in the money sense of being mean as well, hmm. where if he could extort a small amount of money out of someone, he would still do it. Yeah. Or not even money, just like some, a, a tiny bit of land hmm. or some cows or something. Uh, it's yeah. just so weird, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Well, you know, some rich people are also the, the tightest. Right? Yeah, well, they it's didn't weird, get rich by spending money, did they? Sorry? They didn't get rich by spending right. money, did they, Bob? Right, yeah. But isn't it, I always find it weird that mm. like a multi-multi-millionaire is also a penny pincher. Yeah. I always find that weird. But it's often the case, isn't it? Yeah. I always got the feeling that like someone like Alan Sugar would be a penny pincher, you know, <laughs> Not just because he's that sort of London, like, boomer type, you know? Anti-Semitic, there, Carl? No. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> No, no, Joking. there's a kind of like London boomer who, you know what I mean? You, yeah. you know the sort of type no. I'm talking about. Like, you know, they, they, they just don't have it. So I'm not giving them money. You're, you know, like, I don't think it's because he's Jewish. I have known some wealthy people. Yeah. And probably the majority of them are, are massive penny pinchers. Mm. Someone lives in a mansion and they've got like more than one mm. sports car and they won't turn the heating on. To be fair, that'd be my dad if he was rich. Right. <laughs> like my dad could be a multi-millionaire and he'd still be concerned about the amount we're spending on the heating. Right. It's, it's just a boomer thing, I think. I'd be the opposite. I'd just be oh, yeah, constantly littering it away. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I just, I was just weird. Yeah. Was just, well, no, I would too. If you've got it, spend it a bit. Yeah. Uh, after you've sorted out all your... Yeah, yeah. All the, sort of the base level things and you're not in debt and everything. But, you know, if I had, if I was, had millions and millions of pounds of liquid wealth, I wouldn't be worrying about how long people are taking hot showers for when they come when they visit, <laughs> right? You yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so John seems to have been a, a miser like that. Yeah. And he was. He did accrue a fantastic amount of wealth. Again, I think he did. Maybe Mark Morris. He said he was by far the richest monarch up to that point. I can believe it. I mean, um, he spends all of his day stealing his subjects' wealth. Where's it gonna go? He's not spending it on military campaigns, is he? Mm. Yeah, he's not yeah. Richard. He's not crusading. Yeah, um, yeah. Just to m make the point again, like people in his court, he would just basically kind of extort money mm. out of them in any way he could. Um, now you get people's backs up, like I mean, really, where they're prepared to revolt and stuff. Mm if you start messing with their money, even more than, than if you mess with their personal life. Hmm. Also, John is supposed to have, he was sort of um, on some level a sexual degenerate. Mm -hmm. We mentioned earlier that he took yep. an extremely young wife. Um, but also, as all the Plantagenets kings did, just slept with the wives and daughters of people at court. Yep. So for example, Henry I, 
was known as uh, a real lech. Like uh, he had he had dozens of illegitimate children. Henry the first. Um, Henry the second was very much a womanizer. Richard was as well, but they seems they did it in such a way that didn't make people loathe them. So quite often Richard and Henry the second would take the wives and daughters of people of the knightly class. But John was doing it to his barons. And I love that that's the, see, that, that's fine. He's just doing it to the knights. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, it's almost like it was an honor that, you know, it was an honor that the king might bed someone in your family Maybe or that, even yeah. your own wife. Yeah. 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 But, but when you do it to the highborn, the nobility, mm. um, again, that's not okay. Um, especially in like the, the uh, sort of the early 13th century, late 12th century, early 13th century, the king is supposed to be something like the most senior of the barons in a way. It's a funny mm. way of put, putting it. He's like anointed by God and stuff. Yeah. But his, his baronial class, mm. um, it's a bit like an officer corps or something, or yeah. a sixth form common room. Yes, he's the leader. Yes, he's sort of formally definitely above us. Mm. But also, like, don't push it too far. It's, we are supposed to be... It's called a peerage for a reason. Right, right. right. Exactly. They, it, exactly. It, they are, yeah, they, they are peers, even though they're not equals. You know, that's the thing. And so, yeah, the, he, he definitely has obligations to these people. Yeah, yeah. And you've got like Henry VIII was obviously a famous mm. womanizer, but he wouldn't be taking the wives of the Duke of Norfolk and things. Um, he would find you, some common woman. You, yeah, yeah. Basically, I mean, you know. Yeah. You, um, you, you would just expect that would be nothing but trouble, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. John. Yeah. <laughs> and what happened then, John? <laughs> it seems like he either didn't care. I was doing it for fun. Or didn't realise, or was, yeah, or is actually... Uh, malicious. I think we've got um, enough of the measure of a man to say that he was malicious in doing this. On like he's trying to humiliate them. Yes. Um, well, it's a slippery slope. There's only so far you can push that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, like I said, they put up with quite a lot over 10 years worth of this mm. sort of thing. Um, another quick paragraph here from Church. We said, uh, both John and Innocent, Pope Innocent III, uh, persevered in their new partnership, because I mentioned right at the end of the last one that he'd been, there'd been yeah. an interdict against the whole of England. <laughs> yeah, he'd been excommunicated. And then John personally had been excommunicated. And then John had blinked and given up. When it yeah. looked like Philip Augustus was going to invade, he blinked. He pledged the whole of his kingdom to the papacy as, as their faith and received it back as a vassal of the Pope. So now he and the church are reconciled. Oh. Because Innocent was sort of happy to accept it. It's one less thorn in his side. Um, so yeah, they preserved in their new, uh, persevered in their new partnership. Uh, and the disaffected barons drew together under the leadership of Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury. The, the Archbishop of Canterbury, John, didn't want. Hmm. And saw as like some sort of, um, Almost a spy in his midst, almost a papal spy in his midst, because Stephen Langton was innocent pick. Um, okay, Churchill goes on. Uh, the war with the French king was continued, and John's demands in money and service, kept, and service kept the baron's anger hot. 
1214, an English expedition which John led to Poitou failed. Now, this is of key importance. This is what sets up the whole sort of final chapter of John's reign and Magna Carta and everything. He tried really hard to attack Philip and failed. Um, in northern France, the army commanded by his nephew, Otto of Saxony, um, the son of one of his sisters they married off to, mm -hmm. to the Saxon king, um, and by the Earl of Salisbury, was defeated by King Philip at Bouvines. Now, this battle of Bouvines is, is key. Uh, but Churchill goes on, uh, This battle destroyed in a day the whole continental combination on which John's hopes had been based. Here again was the opportunity of the king's domestic enemies. They formed plans to restrain the rule of a despotic and defeated king and openly, openly threatened revolt unless their terms were accepted. Left to themselves, they might have uh, ruined their cause by rancorous opposition and selfish demands. But Archbishop Lan Langton, anxious, anxious for a just peace, exercised a moderating influence upon them. Nor could the king, as a papal vassal, openly disregard Langton's advice. So, John tried really, really hard. He's got all this money, mm. and he's got a bit of a reputation. You know, he did a bit of a miracle at Mirabeau to mm. capture Arthur that time and, and save his mother. But in, in general, he was called, what was he called? Uh, Soft-sold. Soft yeah. He was known as being crap yeah. as a military commander and not decisive. Yeah. Um, Especially so, when you're living in the shadow of your brother. And he's got all this money, so he decides, you know, what I really want to do is sort of, you know, uh, smash Philip down sort of once and for all. And so he gets together this big coalition and tries to attack him uh, in a some sort of giant pincer movement. Um, two army groups, one coming down from the north, from like Flanders, essentially, mm. and he will attack from Poitou, which is, you know, around, in and around Anjou, in the middle of France, really, mm. and will both converge in and around the Seine region, around the Paris region. And it just it, it all it just it all fails. Philip, although he's no Richard, is actually not a slouch. Yeah. Um, and he's middle aged. He knows his business now. Mm. Philip. And anyway, um, there's a battle at, at Bovine, and it, uh, it's a complete rout as far as John is concerned. Now, in French history, if you're a French history fan, or you're a Frenchman. Um, Bouvines would be a very, very, very famous battle for you. It'd be like uh, Cressy mm. or Agincourt or something for us. Mm. You would know it. Yeah. You would know it because what it does is it turns the French kingdom from being, as we said, almost like a pocket around Paris to it sets it absolutely on the, on the route to being the greatest monarchy in Europe, in Western Europe, certainly. For centuries and centuries and centuries mm. and where the normans ever since the days of rollo really um all the way up to now has been a giant problem a giant thorn in the sides of the capetian king the, the french kings the true french monarchy um and that this really really worrying connection between england and normandy unbelievably rich and powerful all that is broken mm. by the battle of bouvines because afterwards, John essentially um, evacuates Europe, essentially. So he loses, he loses Anjou, he loses Normandy. Mm. Um, he retreats back to Rouen, the capital of Normandy. 
and literally evacuates it, orders that all the all the Norman records and everything, all his ancestors, is all taken to England. He knows he's gonna it's gonna be overrun by Philip. Hmm. Um and it is. Um so it's just a massive, massive turning point for the French. No wonder we don't really know it in uh, our popular consciousness. Yeah, yeah. It's not talked to, well, I was going to say it's not talked to English children like Cressy's. Cressy isn't anymore, is it? You know, yeah. You're not really taught yeah. anything. Like Agincourt but, used to be. Right. Yeah, Bouvine is for that, for the for French. The French. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's really, really pivotal. Yeah. It really is. Um, okay, so... John is, in terms of sort of foreign policy and military matters, is completely on the back foot or defeated. Now, in the medieval period, pre-modern period, that's huge, isn't it? It says God is not on your side. Um, it says... And I think a lot of people probably would have felt that. A lot of historians say that was sort of the final nail in the coffin. Yeah. Already he's like a tyrannical Yeah. Um, and... Uh, Degenerate yeah. in all sorts of ways, uh, just a bad ruler, a bad person, exploitative, disrespectful, uh, ungrateful, yeah, slimy. And he's been, he's had an interdict, although now it's lifted, yeah. and he's been excommunicated, excommunicated although yeah. that's now been reversed. But now he's the vassal of the Pope, which none of the English kings were previously. So there's a lot of shame on John. So all of those things, and now he's uh, an out and out. Undeniable military failure. Yeah, now he's a loser so, on top of it. Right, yeah. And if yeah. if there's one thing you can take away from Machiavelli, is that a prince's only thought and purpose should be for war. Because that's what a medieval king did. He was he was the commander of the armies. And if you can't win battles, then you're not a good king. Yeah, yeah. It's that simple. Sort of the... I'm just thinking of this now. It's sort of the opposite of what happened with Henry V, uh, almost exactly 200 years later. Mm where his reign, arguably, was quite shaky. His father was a usurper, essentially. Hmm. He goes over and he wins uh, a big battle in a couple of different campaigns. Hmm. And so you can make the argument um, he's in God's favour. Well, God is an Englishman. God is on his side. There's no way to deny it. Yeah. And so he goes from sort of this shaky power base to being, to being hailed through the streets. Mm -hmm. People quite literally cheering his name. And People things. love a winner. Right. Another quick paragraph here from Church, we said. But John had still one final resource. Encouraged by the Pope, he took the vows of a crusader and the Pope invoked sentence of excommunication upon his opponents. Um, the conditions of 1213 were now entirely reversed. The barons, who had thought to be, uh, who had thought to be crusaders against an excommunicated king, were now under the ban themselves. But this agile use of the papal thunders had robbed them of some of their virtues as a, as a deterrent. Mm. The barons, encouraged by the king's defeat abroad, persist persisted in their demands in spite of the papal bull. A great party of the church stood with them. In vain did John manoeuvre by the offer to grant freedom of election to the church, to separate the clergy from the barons. Armed revolt seemed the only solution. Although in the final scene of the struggle, the Archbishop showed himself unwilling to go to the extreme of civil war, it was he who persuaded the barons to base, to base their demands upon respect for ancient custom and law, and who gave them some principle to fight, uh, to fight for besides their own class interests. 
After 40 years' experience of the administrative system established by Henry II, the men who now confronted John had advanced beyond the magnates of King Stephen's time. He's referencing the anarchy there, where the baron, the baronial class, couldn't really get it together. We just had a really long anarchy. So it's not, that's not the case anymore. Um, they, the baronial class, uh, had learned to think intelligently and constructively. In place of the king's arbitrary despotism, they proposed uh, uh, not the withering anarchy of feudal separatism, but a system of checks and balances which would uh, accord the monarchy its necessary strength, but would prevent its perversion by a tyrant or a fool. The leaders of the barons in 1215 groped in the dim light towards a fundamental principle. Government must henceforward mean something more than the arbitrary rule of any man, and custom and the law must stand even above the king. It was this idea, perhaps only half understood, that gave unity and force to the barons' opposition and made the charter which they now demanded imperishable." So one of the things that always gets said about Magna Carta, uh, let's just start talking about Magna Carta here, um, one of the things that always gets said is that um, it's not a sort of a, a constitutional blueprint in any way. It doesn't mention Parliament, it doesn't mention liberties, it doesn't mention the freedoms, it's... Oh, it kind of does. It, For the baronial <clears throat> class? Not entirely. Um, 39 and 40 say no free man will ah. have his possessions. But what does that? Uh, okay, so let's get straight into it from this section yeah. analysis. That doesn't mean normal people. Um, well, it depends on your interpretation, doesn't it? Right. Yeah, and in most way. interpretations is that's not the normal. That's not the bulk of people in the nation. But it, it's kind of the same problem that the American revolutionaries have, where they say, "Well, all, all men are born free." It's like, okay, but I know you're not thinking of the yeomen, but they are also free men, and so you have kind of committed to it after the fact. And so, you know, I know you weren't thinking of the blacks when you said this, <laughs> but they are also men, and you've also committed to this. And this is, this is like a, a fairly common occurrence in constitutional history, where there is an oppressed class or a, a subclass of people who, because of the lofty terminology that's being used, okay. get swept up into it. And before we get into that, though, a broader point to make, and we'll get into what who was who wasn't free and the word free men in the actual charter yeah before we get into that the point i was trying broader point i was trying to make is that it doesn't mention parliament no of course not. doesn't mention uh like representatives doesn't no. mention demo there's word democracy isn't in there well, no, it's, it's, it's nothing like it's that. the product of a feudal kingdom okay where everything is based on ancient custom and it re references ancient liberties and customs over and over and over in the documents like four or five times where it just harks back to this um because this was just the, and again, it goes back to essentially the Germanic way of law, which is the things we do are pretty good. So why are you perverting them? You know, and that's and the Magna Carta is a kind of attempt to get back to a previous era before John was a tyrant and was taking advantage of everything. Yeah, and yet there are lots of new things in there. Mm -hmm. So again, just a broad point is that uh, take the American Constitution and the American Bill of Rights, or um, or some of the things the French Revolutionary said, hmm. things Rousseau said. Well, I try not um, to. <laughs> but in that, it's a very deliberate, explicit attempt to say, these are the rights of men. So there's hmm. nothing like that in Magna Carta. It says these are sort of the imperishable, fundamental 
rights of what it means to be a free person. It's not that. It's not like no. that. No, it's, it's, um, it's non-ideological, right? Because no. the thing is, everything that we're talking about from the, the American Revolution, in fact, the English Bill of Rights onwards, the, these become ideological, so they become abstract and they become formulated as the rights of Englishmen or from the English Bill of Rights, and then the American and onwards be the rights of men. And this is the foundational point of liberalism, really. Um, up until then, what you have are just Englishmen asserting their rights against the king. Hmm. And this is a sort of charter of rights that, of course, the barons themselves are claiming um, based on the way things have always been done. So it's very heavily situated in a political tradition rather than being a sort of abstract, rational, formulated uh, list of intrinsic rights. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.